Thank you for listening to the Adult Explore the Bible Weekly Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWay's Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions teachers may face, and give some teaching tips along the way. I'm Dwayne McCurry, your host, and today I'm being joined by Michael Kelly, who's the Vice President of the Groups Ministry at LifeWay. Michael, thank you for being with us for today. Oh, it's my pleasure. What a wonderful text for us to talk about. Oh, yeah. Uh, here we are. We've been studying Job for the past uh, six weeks. This is our seventh week of Job. Just as a reminder to folks out there, we have we started by seeing Job in our first session. We saw Job getting, uh, you know, losing everything, Satan, Satan making accusations, and then God giving Satan permission uh, to test Job. And then after that, we see a series of conversations. We've studied those conversations between uh, the friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far. Some of the more encouraging people that you'll ever see in Scripture. <laughs> um, they've had their conversations, and Job has responded to them. And finally, later on in chapter 32, we find Elihu speaking up, appeared to be someone who's sitting over the side, and he makes some, some strong observations. And then Job responds to him, and then Finally, God interrupts the whole conversation. We looked at that last week when we looked at Job chapter 40, uh, 40 and asked some pointed questions of Job and his friends. And then Job responds, and that's where we are here in chapter 42, which is the last chapter. It's, the, it's where everything is moving towards. And in this particular, these verses that we're looking at in, in verses uh, 1 through 11, we have three main ideas. We have admit, repent, and restored. That first point, admit, is in verses 1 through 6. In these verses, we see Job is replying to God. He expressed dependence upon God for wisdom and understanding, and he recognized that God alone is sovereign. Job confesses his inability to understand, and he commits to trust God for wisdom. Now, a big thing for us to think about here is that Job shifts his focus from demanding answers to just being at peace knowing that God's in control. A big point for us is that we can admit our dependence on God in all things in life. In verses 7 through 9, we find the idea of repent. Here, God addressed Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Interesting, he doesn't say anything to Elihu here. But to those three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, he brings charges against them. And he directs them to offer a sacrifice and ask Job to pray on their behalf. God then accepts Job's prayer, and he reconciles the men to himself and to Job. The main point for, for us in this passage is that we can pray on behalf of others. Then verses 10 and 11, we see the idea of restored. In these verses, God restored Job's possessions, giving him twice as much as he had before the ordeal. Job once again hosted his extended family and friends, who then encouraged Job and presented him with money and golden rings. At this point, we want to make, make sure that we help folks understand that God doesn't always promise to restore all our losses to us, but he does reward his people for being faithful to him. A main point for us is what God has in store for his redeemed people will far outweigh any losses experienced in this life. So those a quick look at the these 11 verses. Mike, let's jump right in here. What was Job's sin? What was he repenting of in these verses? It's uh, you know, you, you get to the point in this story of the book of Job where he's he's lost 
he's lost so much and he's been on such an emotional roller coaster. And I'd really like that we, we point out that previous to this point, you know, Job is sort of calling the Lord on the carpet. You know, he is uh, demanding that the Lord give some kind of explanation for the things that he's done. And then the Lord doesn't give him those answers, as we pointed out, uh, but he responds with something better. He, he, he asks Job a series of rhetorical questions. You know, where were you when this happened? And who are you to be doing this? It, so in a way, what the Lord is doing here is simultaneously reminding uh, Job who he is and reminding Job who Job is in comparison to God. <laughs> yeah. So what Job is re- repenting of here is really the fact that he had called into question the wisdom of God. Um, I think it's important for us to remember because there's a, there's a way that we can treat Job as, as teachers, that we can treat the book of Job as a, a really clinical kind of book uh, where we just sort of parse it out. But there's something pastoral here, some, a way that we could be compassionate to people who are really struggling and, and who have had really, really um, deep, heartfelt questions about the ways of the Lord. So one of the things that we can point out is that, that, that God, in as, as much as it is difficult for us to accept it many times, that God always reserves the right to be God. And he reserves the right to act like God. Uh, he, he doesn't have to tell us why. No, he's not obligated to share with us. In fact, the Bible tells us in many places that the Lord is not going to tell us. Yeah. Uh, Job included, you know, this book included, that, that our quest for constant answers is in some ways a fruitless endeavor. Because let's be honest, even if we had all the answers to all the points of suffering in our lives, I don't. I don't think it would make us feel better, not really, because the the things and the people and the, the stuff that we lost would still be gone. So we think we need answers, but I think the Lord knows what we need more than answers is himself. We need him. Uh, and so part of it, part of what Job is repenting of here is questioning the wisdom of, of God in the decisions that he's making. So Job is bringing himself to a point of of humble submission under the ways and the will of the Lord instead of a posture of presumption that's demanding that the Lord give an account for himself. We didn't talk about this, but do you think if if Job had gotten the answer, he would have had more questions on top of that? I, I mean, I do. I just think it's a continual, it's, a, it's just a cycle. You keep going, you keep going, you keep going. And Dwayne, I'm, I think that's, it's a really important point to recognize that the fuel for obedience for us is not knowledge primarily, it's, it's faith. Uh, faith is the fuel for obedience. Uh, just by way of example, you, you can even see that uh, as our, our kids grow uh, in the way that they obey us. Now, at, at some point when the kids are smaller, they obey just because you have the authority to make them obey. But hopefully your relationship as a parent with your children progresses to the point where they obey because they genuinely trust that you know what you're talking about yeah. and, and they trust that you actually love them, that you're giving these commands for their own good. And the same thing is true with the Lord. 
you know, we obey because we're confident in the character of God, even if we don't understand all the particular ways of God. One of the things that may help folks at this point is using Pack Adam 5. Uh, Pack Adam 5, it just includes Job's statements of faith. There's four that are identified. Mm. The first one is in chapter 14, which we were looked at in week two. The second one was in, in Job 19, which we were looked at at week three, where he says, I know my Redeemer lives. The other two are in these two are in these verses one through five, one through six. The first one is in verses one and two. He says, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. And then the second declaration of his faith or statement of his faith is in verses five and six, where he says, I heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. And I uh, therefore I reject my words and I'm sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. One of the things that strikes me when I look at these four statements is the progression. Uh, the first one, I'll wait to, uh, in, in, in chapter 14, the first one, I'll wait uh, all the days of my struggle until my relief comes. So I'm just going to sit here and be quiet and wait. Then I know my Redeemer lives. I know there's someone who's listening. Then he admits that I, I can't thwart your plans. I don't, I don't even know them. And then finally he says, I've seen you face to face. You see this progression in his faith development in those four declarations of faith, which I think are important for us to bring out when we're teaching this lesson, is we see the end result of Job's faith in chapter 42. And we, we look at that book in that way, but we forget there's a long progression that's taken place that's gotten him to that point. So that'll help us uh, bring out the point in, in the verses one through six that we are to admit our dependence on God because we see that in those statements of faith. Um, how does our confession open the door for a deeper understanding of God. Yeah, I think confession just by its very nature is, is a humbling thing. Uh, by, by its very nature, confession is humbling because in, in essence, what you're doing when you're, you confess is that you are admitting that you were wrong about something. You acted wrongly, you thought wrongly, you believed wrongly, wh whatever it is, you are admitting that you're wrong and you're doing it in a specific way. You know, I, uh, it, it's particularly humbling when you come before the Lord and you confess, not just generally, hey, Lord, I know I've done some bad stuff today. No, 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 no. To, to specifically admit this is where I've showed a lack of faith or a lack of obedience. That's a very humbling thing uh, to do it without trying to explain it away or justify all the valid reasons that you had to do or think or believe or feel or whatever it was but you just do it without equivocation, you, you admit. Uh, and, and then it's the humble that always come near the Lord more and more. Uh, this, is, this is the characteristic of people who walk with God. It's not people who can explain God, but it's those who are content to walk by faith with God. And it, it, it's intrinsically you, it must be in a spirit of humility if you're, you're going to walk with the Lord. And so con confession is just one of those vehicles that we ride to, to a greater degree of humility, which in turn leads us to a closer walk with God. Here in this passage, God directs Job to pray on behalf of his friends. That is the role that Job's going to fulfill here in reconciling his friends compared to the role we play as an ambassador and how does it point to Jesus in this passage? 
was, well, it certainly does both of those things, I think. A, an ambassador is someone who represents another, right? So an ambassador represents their nation of origin or another person or a corporation or whatever. So, so they represent the interests of that person uh, in, a, in a, another entity, a foreign land, something like that. So an ambassador is a, a go-between. So what, what Job is doing here is uh, standing in the gap between his friends and God. Now, we got to be careful here because uh, it, it's not like Job was a priest for his friends. And that's an important thing to recognize. Mm -hmm. we, we, don't, we, don't need a, we don't need a priest. We, not, not because priests aren't valuable. It's because we already have one. We, we have a priest. And his, yeah. his name is Jesus. He's the only one that we need. But as we pray on behalf of other people, we do, in a way, stand between them and, and God uh, because we are entreating their cause to God. Um, and at the same time, we're able to communicate things about God uh, to other people. So it's a wonderful role that the Lord has, that the Lord has given us. It, it also um, a way, Job, to rebuild his relationship with these friends. Yeah, um, for sure. You're going to pray with somebody that changes the relationship. And it does. I have often, I've often thought if there's somebody in my life that I just don't like very much, then one of the, one of the most practical and best things I can do, not just for them, but for my own heart is to actually pray for them. And time after time, you know, prayer not only changes circumstances, it also changes the one who's doing it. You know, it, it changes our, it changes our hearts. I, I think it's super encouraging too here to remember again that it does point us to Jesus, that Jesus is our great high priest, that he is the ultimate go between between us and God, that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. He is our high priest. And that in that role as the high priest, Jesus actually practices what he preaches. So I, I just remember when I was reading this, I, I was remembering in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus told us, you know, don't just pray for your friends. Even, even the pagans do that. Anybody can do that. Uh, as Christians, you, there is more for you. There's a higher ethic for you. Pray for those who hate you and those who persecute you and love your enemies. So Jesus says for, for these people that you don't even think deserve the mercy of God, well, those are precisely the people that you ought to be praying for. And he not only commands us to do it, but Jesus practices what he preaches. Jesus did this. Uh, he prayed for his enemies. And, uh, and, and then to the end of reconciling them with, with the Father. At the very end of this, this story, we find that everything is restored to Job. In fact, he has twice as much stuff as he did before. Should we expect the same? And how can we help our class deal with that, that issue? And this is such an important point, I think, for teachers to make. Because there is a way that you could read Job like the end of Job is an earthly promise. Hey, if you just endure through your suffering, don't worry, God's going to give it all back. And that is, that is not true. No, no, not true. Uh, that is a very presumptuous posture for us to take. It, it's assuming that we know all the ways of God, and it's setting up a scenario in which we think of God being in our debt, as in, God chose to take 
X from me, therefore he is bound to give Y to me. And that is such a dangerous, dangerous posture to have. Uh, when people take that posture, they have false hope. Uh, they have um, their, their hope and their joy rooted in the wrong thing. And chances are they're going to end up in, in a, a life of bitterness and resentment and anger. Now, that's not to say that the Lord might not do that. He, he might. He did for Job. He, he might do that. But it's one thing to say that the Lord might do something and another thing to live with the expectation that the Lord is bound to do this because he owes it to me. Uh, to do Joe, the, the way I read chapter, if I read all of chapter 42, I, I, I feel that Job would have been content to just be happy knowing yeah. that God accepted him. That was all yeah. he needed to know. I agree. I don't think Job lived with the expectation that he was going to get any of his, any of his people or his things back. I don't, I don't think he lived with that expectation. It was something that the Lord chose to do. Um, so again, the, the way that we approach loss in our lives, I think, says a great deal about our, our hearts. Uh, it, it's, it's perfectly fine and natural and, and even healthy for us to be sad and mournful and grief-stricken about things in our lives. But the way to do that, I think, with a humble posture is to feel the way that you feel, to feel deeply the way that you feel, to bring it to the Lord, to trust that through grief you actually walk closer with the Lord because he feels our grief too, but to also humbly recognize that the Lord is not bound uh, to act in any certain, in any certain way. So you can rest on the promise that the Lord is good, that the Lord is wise, that the Lord will give us what he needs, but you can also rest on the promise that regardless of what the Lord chooses to, so we point out in the lesson, that regardless of what the Lord chooses to do in this life, that there is indeed reward for faithfulness and endurance and perseverance, that, that it does come back around. I, I'm reminded again of the words of Jesus. When, when you know, Peter has this moment, you remember in the Gospels, where it's almost like he throws up his hands and he's like, we've left everything to follow you, you know, come oh, yeah. on, uh -huh. you know. And, and Jesus says, look, man, trust, trust me. I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but, yeah. but he says, look, trust me, what you are gaining in terms of following me at some point in the distant future, everything that you regard as loss right now will pale in comparison to what you're going to gain, to what you're going to see. Uh, and, and for many of us, that's an eternal uh, promise. Um, in fact, for all of us, it's an eternal promise promise. And we can expect that. That's, that's, that's what we believe. It's what we believe. Yeah. I, I don't think Peter was expecting God to say, well, you know, you left some really nice fishing boats. I'm going to give you a boat. You've never seen <laughs> that's right. It's going to be a bigger boat. I'm going to yeah. give it to you. No, no, no. Uh, no. <laughs> I think he was, that's so shallow when you think about it. Yeah. Um, it, it has no lasting value. So why would we want something to be granted to us that, that, ceases to exist the moment we exist wouldn't we want something that would that would go with us through eternity yeah any other key thoughts or ideas that you would share from this particular passage michael you know i i think just this whole passage of job's posture Dwayne, i love what you shared about the progression of joe's uh, of job's statements of faith i think that's so insightful uh and i think that in seeing those 
it really does bring a, a pastoral kind of emphasis to this because you know, teachers need to understand if you just look at that as a dynamic, here's the jokes that one of the things that shows us is, as you pointed out, that this is a process. And so when they stand in front of their class and teach this lesson, people are going to be at all different phases in that process. And that's okay. Our, our job is not to talk them out of the phase that they're in, but to trust that if, if they're walking in faith, the Lord is going to move them through those phases of grief. Uh, ultimately to a place of deeper faith and deeper trust in him. Uh, thank you all for listening today. If you have comments or questions, you're always welcome to send me an email at dwayne.mccurry at lifeway.com. That's D-W-A-Y-N-E dot M-C-C-R-A-R-Y at lifeway.com. And I'll do my best to answer your question. Or if I don't know the answer, I'll find the right person who can answer your question for you. Join us next week. We'll start our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Mike Livingston will be joining us as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 26.